Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. New York, what is up? I feel like a broken record at this stage, but if you weren't aware, the Agora Podcast Network and several others are going to be hitting up your wonderful city for a very special conference. The Intelligent Speech Conference is landing in New York on the 29th of June, 2019. I was about to say 1919, but this is not the Intelligent Speech Anniversary Project. This is the Versailles Anniversary Project. And I am, of course, a podcaster, but I'm also a person who occasionally likes to stand in front of people in real time and tell them exactly what is going on or what went on in history or right now. That vague introduction should let you know that I've done conferences before. I've done the Sound Education podcast conference in Harvard last November and I had a ball, but I won't be at this one because I can't go to New York. I'm going to Sicily instead on holidays, so that's that's basically the reason why I'm not going. But that does not mean you should not go. You should go, because the likes of Mike Duncan, Kevin Stroud, David Crowther, and so many others are going to be in person 
and live. So you can hear from them, their experiences and their take on certain topics. If you'd like to find out more, intelligentspeechconference.com. And you really should go if you're in a position to, because this is probably the best opportunity you will have to meet these people in person. And, as I've said before, if this does well enough, it'll certainly be happening again. Maybe not in New York, maybe in Dublin, where we can paint the town, well, whatever colour you want to paint it, but I won't have to get a plane and a bus and a train and all these different modes of transport in order to reach this wonderful conference. Instead, it'll be right on my doorstep, and I'll be able to have a pint of the black stuff with you, I will be able to reminisce on how many crazy projects Zach Twomley insists on creating. Until then, though, this is going to be in New York, and I do hope you will show up if you are from New York or from the tri-state area, which I'm not really sure what that means, but I assume that means you're from the area three states away or something. Not really familiar with American terminology. To Irish people, the tri-state area basically means the Dublin commuter belt. So maybe if you're from the New York commuter belt, head on over to the Intelligent Speech Conference and say hello to some of the people that have been saying hello to you for the last several years. Other than that, if you'd like to say hello to them over the interweb, then maybe you'd like to join one of the many flick groups that these lovely history podcasters have going, one of which I am using at the moment, and I am enjoying talking with you guys about several different topics related to the Versailles anniversary project. Currently, we're debating whether or not Woodrow Wilson would in fact have intervened in the First World War had he realised that the whole post-war arrangement was not going to be as easy as he expected. A huge shout-out to Debbie, who was really crushing it by intervening in all of these groups. And also by sharing the love on Twitter about how great these groups have been. Make sure you check out When Diplomacy Fails' Flick group by clicking on the link in the description below. It is, of course, free. All you have to do is download this app from the Android store or from the App Store and Apple, wherever you get your apps from, etc., etc. And you'll be able to join with all of us discussing the most relevant issues that we've brought up in our episodes. I hope you'll check that out. And if not, I hope you'll check out the Intelligent Speech Conference. But most of all, guys, I hope you'll stay tuned and have a listen to this very interesting latest installment of the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 74. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 74 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the last episode, we examined Germany's answer to the draft treaty at long last. After debating and planning for three weeks, the German counter-proposals to the Allied peace terms were thorough, well-researched and in many Allied minds, quite damning. The counter-proposals had the effect of splitting the Allied camp between those who wished to hold firm and those that wished to grant some concessions to the Germans. Predictably enough, and understandably enough, the French were on the side of standing firm, the Americans were somewhere in the middle, and the British were beginning to seem as though they wished to change several aspects of the treaty. 
The British position was especially marked once David Lloyd George came out in favour of several revisions, following a meeting he had with his delegation on Sunday the 1st of June. This meeting, so it would seem, utterly transformed the Prime Minister's outlook on everything that had been arranged up to this point. As his colleagues moved him to make the changes, suddenly Lloyd George felt pressured to appease his delegation, as well as, interestingly, the British people. The first week of June thus contained a more fractious atmosphere among the big three than it had in a very long time. This was supposed to be the final stretch, the period where the Germans adhered to Allied demands, and everyone went home. Instead, the prospect of painfully reopening several clauses of the treaty loomed into view. To people like Clemenceau, this was totally unacceptable, and the French Premier began to move into complete opposition to his British peer like never before. While the minutes retain an air of politeness throughout, from other sources it becomes clear that Lloyd George made few friends with his about-face, and yet he felt forced to engage in this unpopular programme of revision. Posterity, the British people, a sense of justice, and even the Germans, if you like, deserved nothing less than the absolute confidence of the Allies in the peace treaty they had just made. If this confidence could not be assured, then did it not make sense to alter the more disagreeable elements of the treaty now, before it was too late? Lloyd George's major objections seemed to centre on the specific case of Upper Silesia, which he insisted was not so Polish as had been claimed. His other objections were especially irritating for France, as the Prime Minister insisted that an occupation of the Rhineland in any form was unnecessary and immensely unpopular at home in Britain. Clemenceau didn't care if it was unpopular, but Lloyd George's other request, that a figure be arrived at for reparations, rather than waiting for the deliberations of the Reparations Commission in the future, did pick the interests of some Allied leaders. Armed with these points and several others, Lloyd George seemed willing to blunder through weeks' worth of Allied goodwill, not to mention hard work. They thought the treaty was a closed case and that nothing could possibly undermine what had been agreed. And yet, with the act of submitting their counter-proposals, the Germans had demonstrated that the sun had not set on the treaty just yet. Without any further ado, I will now take you all to the 1st of June, 1919. When one asks why arriving at the Treaty of Versailles took so long, we need look no further than the British response to the German counter-proposals. Had the British delegation, including especially its Dominion partners, felt confident enough to ignore or absorb the German points, then it is entirely possible the treaty could have been signed a fortnight earlier at least. As it happened though, some British officials were loudly critical of the treaty, and then loudly open to the idea of considering the counter-proposals because of this. We have seen in the past that the Germans were not quiet about their feelings towards the treaty, even before the 29th of May, when those counter-proposals were released. Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau, the German foreign minister, sent several letters over the month of May, criticising the tone and content of the treaty, and urging concessions on numerous points. Brockdorf Ranzau would have known that as he campaigned for such changes, his counterparts in the British and American delegations were beginning to get cold feet as well. There seemed to be a creeping sense, in the last two weeks of May in particular, that several items within the draft treaty were unfair. One individual who felt so inclined was Jan Smuts, who had actually played no small role in shaping how the reparations would be calculated. Thanks to Smuts's input, pensions would be placed on the ledger, and Germany would be responsible for paying 
these pensions to those families of soldiers who had died. This would have the effect of ratcheting up the reparations costs, but Smuts didn't focus on his own responsibility for the peace terms. Instead, he weighed in on the overall tone and content of the draft treaty, spurred on by the 29th of May by the receipt of the German counter-proposals. I am grieved beyond words, Smuts said, that such should be the result of our statesmanship. Smuts believed that occupying the Rhineland and handing portions of formerly German Empire territory to Poland were clauses full of menace for the future of Europe. Smuts told Lloyd George that he would not be able to sign the treaty as it stood, but at the same time, he showed absolutely no desire to relinquish the newly acquired German Southwest African territories, which Smuts planned to reincorporate into South Africa proper. His outrage then only went so far, but the problem for Lloyd George was that he was not the only vocal British delegation critic. The Boches have done exactly what I forecast, exclaimed Sir Henry Wilson, one of the most senior British Army staff officers. They have driven a coach and four through our terms and have then submitted a complete set of their own terms based on the 14 points, which are much more coherent than ours. It certainly did not help that, as these issues were under scrutiny, the Rhineland became subsumed in a mysteriously convenient set of pro-French demonstrations where forces tried to seize government offices in the region. Wilson and Lloyd George both expressed outrage, and Clemenceau privately blamed Marshal Foch, but the French Premier would certainly have loved to have seen the region come into permanent French control. This episode, which was over by the 2nd of June, did add further fuel to the fire that the Rhineland situation should be reconsidered. Rather than the Allied intervals of occupation, which would last a total of 15 years, Lloyd George was suggesting now that alternative arrangements should be considered. The mood back at home seemed to be changing too. In the past, the British public was up in arms at the possibility that the peace would not grant the British supreme benefits. Cries of hang the Kaiser had done the rounds during the December 1918 general election. And yet, in a by-election in late May, the coalition candidate lost out to another candidate that was calling for a good and early and non-revengeful peace. The mood in Britain then was changing perhaps just as everyone became a little bit sick of the talk of the treaty dominating everything. The war, as far as many was concerned in Britain, should have been over by now. Yet even though the fighting had stopped, soldiers still hadn't been wholly demobilised, and there was a complete lack of understanding as to why it was taking so long. The counter-proposals document was the final nail in this coffin of patience, but it also granted Lloyd George the chance to move affairs along, by granting concessions to Germany in some areas and holding on to the most important clauses. Lord Balfour had told Lloyd George that he had found the counter-proposals in many particulars very difficult to answer, and the Prime Minister was liable to agree with him. In his mind, the Germans were effectively saying to the Allies, You have a set of principles which, when they suit you, you apply, but which, when they suit us, you put by. Considering all these misgivings, it is hardly surprising that Lloyd George believed it appropriate to call a meeting of the British Empire delegation as soon as possible. It was convenient that a Sunday, traditionally a day off from the Council of Four, had fallen at this moment. Sunday the 1st of June 1919 was thus occupied for the day with varied meetings between Lloyd George and his subordinates from Britain and across the globe.
To cut a long story short, Lloyd George came away from that Sunday and looked into the week ahead, more convinced than ever of the need to alter certain aspects of the treaty, in particular the clauses on the Rhineland, on Upper Silesia and on reparations. Not only was Lloyd George himself convinced, but the Prime Minister had also been given the blessings of his delegation to act in their name to get these changes accepted by the Big Three before it was too late. Armed with the impassioned pleas of his colleagues, among them Smuts, Louis Botha and even Churchill, who made speeches during the gathering, Lloyd George was authorised to ensure that Britain not be made to pay for the consequences of the Franco-German antagonism. France must relent on key issues like the Rhineland, and German compliance could be assured by an early accession of the Weimar Republic into the League of Nations. When Lloyd George met with the Council of Four the next day on Monday the 2nd of June, it was already known among his counterparts that he had emerged a completely changed man. His opposition rested on two key points. First, that he was not allowed to sign the treaty as it currently stood, and second, that if Germany refused to sign, then Britain would not give permission for its army to march into Germany unless the treaty was made more lenient. Increasingly, Lloyd George had come to rely on issues like public opinion, on the consideration of the future of Europe, and on the wisdom of moderation, issues which had apparently not mattered all that much to him when he had agreed to sign the treaty draft several weeks before. Thus, the meeting of Monday the 2nd of June was to be the most uncomfortable meeting, for it was here that Lloyd George would clarify what had been decided the previous day in the Empire Delegation meeting, and where Britain's new red lines now existed. It must have been profoundly frustrating for Wilson and Clemenceau, both of whom imagined that the Big Three would maintain a front of solidarity, even if they did not agree on all of the treaty's tenets. Now, here was the Prime Minister, declaring his willingness to give way at the first sign of determined German resistance. It simply would not do. There was also something unapologetically disingenuous in the way that Lloyd George declared to have found fault with several elements of the treaty that he had played a role in developing. It makes me a little tired, recorded Wilson to the American delegation, for people to come and say now that they are afraid the Germans won't sign and their fear is based upon things that they insisted upon having at the time of the writing of the treaty. In private, Wilson was even less guarded, declaring his belief that Lloyd George appeared to have no principles whatsoever of his own, that he reacted according to the advice of the last person who had talked with him, that expediency was his sole guiding star. Unsurprisingly, Wilson and Clemenceau equally saved their condemnation for private conversation and remained civil in the Council of Four Gatherings. In his confirmation of his newfound stance of contrarianism at 4pm on Monday the 2nd of June, Lloyd George began by declaring... I believe it is my duty to explain the present position of the British delegation towards the German Treaty of Peace. It was an anxious one. So far as the British public is concerned, it has made up its mind that it wants to get peace, and was not so much concerned about the precise terms. British public opinion will not support a government that went on with the war without very substantial reasons. Consequently, I had thought it advisable to invite as many members of the British government as could be spared to come to Paris and confer with me. I had felt it useful to gather the views of men who were not immersed in the details of the peace treaty and whose perspectives were perfectly clear. I had asked each member separately for his opinion. They had proved to be unanimous on certain points. In particular, they had shown that they were not prepared to continue the war and march on Germany 
or join in the reimposition of the blockade unless certain defects in the peace treaty were put right. Lloyd George then proceeded to detail the objections which his staff had decided upon and which were mostly concerned with the parceling of territory and disputed towns in the east along the Polish-German border. Interestingly, when Lloyd George came to the issue of Rhineland occupation, it became quickly apparent that this was a serious bee in the British bonnet. Lloyd George said, The next mission raised had been that of the Army of Occupation. To this, my colleagues would not agree. They urged that when the German army was reduced to a strength of 100,000 men, it was ridiculous to maintain an army of occupation of 200,000 men on the Rhine. They represented that it was only a method of quartering the French army on Germany and making Germany pay the cost. It had been pointed out that Germany would not constitute a danger to France for 30 years, or even 50 years, certainly not in 15 years. There was something to be said for Marshal Foch's view that the Rhine should become the frontier of France, though personally I could not agree to it, but there was nothing to be said for the 15 years occupation. British military opinion coincides with that of all my colleagues in that respect. It would cost 100 millions a year if the burden were placed on the German exchequer, and the result of this would be that there would be nothing left for compensation. Further, it would be a cause of constant friction. Experience has shown that an army could not be quartered in a foreign country after a war without this result. My colleagues therefore said that they could not see their way to authorise the British delegates to sign unless there was some modification of this part of the treaty, nor would they allow the British army to be used for any advance to enforce the treaty unless the modifications were made. They felt that they could not put this burden on Germany and at the same time deprive the Allies of every penny of compensation. The advice of the British military authorities was that two years was the utmost limit of time for the occupation. These points were double-sided. It worried for the likelihood of a resumption of the war in the event of a Rhineland occupation, and it also worried that Germany would be in a position to pay much less if it had to support these occupation costs. Lloyd George's comment that Germany would not be a danger to France until perhaps 30 or 50 years in the future deserves underlining, because it reminds us that neither the British nor the Americans in their turn really grasped the French fear that the Germans would be back again. Lloyd George had been correct, though, when he noted that Germany would certainly not constitute a danger to French security within 15 years. In fact, the Rhineland was occupied by Nazi Germany and the region remilitarized in 16 years, if we count the period as beginning from 1920, which the Treaty of Versailles did. And then, of course, Lloyd George's prophecies that Germany would not be a threat for 30 or 50 years do not age well but neither Lloyd George nor any one of his peers could have predicted that the Second World War would erupt almost 20 years to the month that the Treaty of Versailles was signed. When the Second World War did break out some 19 years and three months later, Lloyd George was one of those few statesmen in Britain who did himself a dishonour by weighing heavily on the appeasement side. Up until the eruption of the war, Lloyd George had worked under the assumption that the Treaty of Versailles had been incredibly unfair and that Nazi activities to undermine its tenets had been just by default. These perspectives may blind us to the fact that Lloyd George had a more active role than most in making this treaty come to life. He was just as responsible for it being in a dissatisfactory state as his French and American peers. By this time though, and in the interwar years especially, Lloyd George became a firm critic of what had been done at Versailles 
and his stance seems to have germinated at this point. Lloyd George concluded on his presentation with a note on the urgency of bringing Germany into the League of Nations and on the idea that his colleagues objected to several of what he called pin pricks, which seemed destined to keep Germany down. Lloyd George's presentation moved Woodrow Wilson to declare that he would like to meet with his own delegation the next morning on Tuesday the 3rd of June. Clemenceau added that he wished to do the same. The French Premier then weighed in on the situation himself. First, he thanked Lloyd George for his frank statement of the position, and then he added, It was an extremely grave situation. Indeed, it could not be more grave. Just as Mr Lloyd George had considered current opinion in his own country, so I have to consider the current opinion here in France. In England, the view seemed to prevail that the easiest way to finish the war was by making concessions. In France, the contrary view was held that it was best to act firmly. The French people, unfortunately, know the Germans very intimately, and they believe that the more concessions we make, the more the Germans would demand. What I fear is that by making concessions, a road would be taken which would lead to peace through negotiations over an incalculable number, not of weeks, but of months. With these preliminary remarks, I would make a few observations on each of the questions raised. Clemenceau then addressed each of Lloyd George's points in turn with a contrary view. Poland, reparations and the Rhineland occupation were all sensitive issues. Clemenceau said that he recognised Germany was not a menace to France at this moment, but that Germany would sign the treaty with every intention of not carrying it out. This was a fear which he and his colleagues had, and in the end we must admit that it proved to be fairly justified. Evasions would be made first on one point, then on the other, Clemenceau said, insisting further that the whole treaty would go by the board if there were not some guarantees such as were provided by the occupation. Consequently, I could not agree to there being no troops on the Rhine. Clemenceau said that he stood by the policy of maintaining the Entente, which entailed the guarantee of French territory and a maintenance of the wartime alliance, pending the approval of Congress and Parliament. Since he had mentioned the Entente issue, Lloyd George sought to make the most of it by essentially saying that France wouldn't need to occupy the Rhine so long as the wartime alliance guaranteed France against German attack. The main British concern, Lloyd George insisted, was in regard to the occupation of the Rhine. My colleagues had felt that from the moment when a guarantee had been given to France that they were attacked by the Germans, Great Britain would go to their support and there should be no question of occupation. Clemenceau responded to this somewhat despairingly that he hoped Lloyd George would not begin the whole matter again. The situation was very grave. Lloyd George now attempted to pull a politician to get what he wanted by buttering up the opposition, in this case Clemenceau, with assurances and compliments. The Prime Minister said that he did not in the least wish to minimise the gravity of the circumstances, but that he had perfectly clear instructions as to the line he was to take, thanks to the meetings of the previous day. Those instructions were in his hand and in writing, Lloyd George said, so he felt he ought to speak frankly. This the Prime Minister dutifully did, saying, My colleagues believe it would be a real danger to the peace of Europe to have a French army on the Rhine. Occupation by a foreign power was always dangerous, but was doubly so in the case of peoples who had hated one another for centuries. The result might be an incident which would necessitate Great Britain coming to the assistance of France. If Monsieur Clemenceau and his cabinet came to the conclusion that they could not meet the British government on that point, 
I would have no alternative but to go home and put the whole matter before my parliament. With this threat from Lloyd George, which is akin to the behaviour of the Italian delegation and what Vittorio Orlando did, Lloyd George then sought to make use of conciliation by admitting his flaws in the circumstances, a surprising spectacle for Lloyd George to engage with. The Prime Minister said, in reference to the Rhineland occupation problem, I have to admit that I ought to have contested this point before. I have never much liked it, and neither had Mr Balfour, but I had not quite realised the strength of the feeling of my colleagues about it. Although they had not put the matter quite so bluntly, the line they had taken up had been that France ought to have been given the alternative between the occupation of the Rhine and the guarantee of her territory. We are quite agreed in this. We ought to have said to France, you are entitled to tell us whether you would prefer to occupy the Rhine or to have our guarantee. I believe British opinion on this was unanimous. To show how I had misunderstood the strength of my colleagues' view on this, I should mention that before we came to Paris, I had reckoned how they would be divided. Some of my colleagues I had anticipated would take a very strong line in one direction and others possibly in another direction. As a matter of fact, they had all been agreed on this point. So Lloyd George admitted that he ought to have done more to investigate the deep wells of opposition against the Rhineland occupation before agreeing to it and allowing it to be placed in the draft treaty. If the Prime Minister thought this confession would have tempered Clemenceau's opposition to a revision of that sensitive question now, though, then he had another thing coming. We should bear in mind just how testy the matter had been, how it had nearly resulted in a divorce between Wilson and Clemenceau in early April, and how Wilson and Clemenceau, both in their turn, had made compromises. Now Lloyd George insisted that he wished to pull these documents out and effectively start over. Clemenceau began his response by saying that he owed it to Mr. Lloyd George to be as frank as he had been. Clemenceau then said, On this point, it is impossible for me to meet his views. Mr. Lloyd George said that if they could not reach an agreement, he must go back to his parliament. I myself am in exactly the same case. I am quite willing to resign my position if I were an obstacle to peace. But it is not good either for me or for Mr. Lloyd George to go to our parliaments on such a matter. I would not conceal my difficulties. I had to struggle continuously against mighty forces in the parliaments and press, etc. Nevertheless, I do not feel any recrimination against Mr. Lloyd George. Lloyd George said it was the same on his part. He had no reproaches of any sort or kind to make. Remember these declarations of no hard feelings for later on, guys. Before concluding, Lloyd George urged that some figure be set for the reparations sum, as the uncertainty was harming the Allies and the Germans alike. Lloyd George urged that Clemenceau not see any sense of menace in his appeals, and Clemenceau replied that he was grateful to be provided with the extent of Lloyd George's views in their honest state. The meeting then adjourned on the 2nd of June, and it was noted that the next morning on the 3rd of June, the delegations would meet privately to discuss their stances on the counter-proposals. Sir Morris Hankey would be tasked with getting Orlando, who was absent from the meeting, up to speed with its decisions. According to the minutes, while the content seemed somewhat fiery, by all accounts, Clemenceau and Lloyd George remained civil and polite. This impression is immediately extinguished, though, when we examine the record of Edward House's diary. Shortly after meeting in the Council of Four on Monday afternoon, George Clemenceau met with House, and House's record on this meeting was revealing indeed. House wrote, 
Clemenceau had just come from a meeting of the Council of Four. He was excited and angry at the position of Lloyd George on the peace treaty. I laughingly repeated pretty much what Lloyd George had said to him at the conference before he had a chance to tell me. I knew this because I knew what Lloyd George had said at the meeting of the British cabinet, the members of which are new here, and I took it for granted that he had used the same arguments with Clemenceau. Clemenceau declared that he would not yield an inch. George wants the period of occupation two years instead of 15. Clemenceau says he will not make it 14 years and 364 days. George also wants a modification of the Tsar Valley decision. I told Clemenceau that I thought the treaty too harsh and ought to have been softened in the making, but I had no sympathy with George, who runs the minute the Germans raise objections to a treaty, with which he had more to do in making it bad than anyone else. Clemenceau said George wanted the Germans admitted immediately to the League of Nations. I replied that I sympathised with this too, but there again, I wanted to fight it out when the treaty was being made and not now after it had been unanimously agreed upon. I asked what explanation he, Clemenceau, could give for not wanting the Germans under control of the League of Nations. He said he did not care, only he did not want them in at once, that in a little while he was perfectly willing, but they must not come in at the very start. It is the old man's purpose to keep me fully informed, for although he knows I do not sympathise with the excessive harshness of the treaty, neither do I sympathise with the desire to run the minute it is assailed. The President said he took practically no part in the discussion, except at one time to come to Clemenceau's aid in regard to the Tsar Valley. From this diary entry, and also from the minutes, we can see that there was a danger that a rift could emerge between the Big Three at precisely the wrong time, but before they met again in the afternoon of the 3rd of June, the Big Three first would have to meet with their delegations. The meeting of the American delegation is of the most interest to us, and House recorded the meeting in his diary, writing, We held a full meeting of the Commission, and many of the experts this morning. There were about 40 in all. I take it there will be a process verbal of this meeting, and I shall not give details. The purpose was to fathom the feeling in the American delegation regarding the German counter-proposals to the treaty. And this reminds me that yesterday I did not go to the ceremonies at Saint-Germain when the Austrians were presented with their treaty. My reasons were partially because I was held here by Orlando until there was time to dress for the occasion, and partly because the hour was inconvenient. I was glad of any excuse to evade it. I not only dislike ceremonies of any sort, but I particularly dislike one where, of necessity, humiliation is imposed upon others. There has been much talk in official American circles about the German answers and what is to be done, and whether there would be any free discussion. In answer to inquiries, I predict that whatever is done, there will be enough trouble to go around, and each will have his share. It occurred to me after lunch that it might be useful to suggest to Clemenceau a plan of action. House's official position was that he did not care much for the treaty, and was far more interested in overseeing the creation of the young League of Nations institution. Yet, because this treaty had been agreed, and it was late in the day, there could be no question of fundamentally altering the treaty's tenets now. House believed that he was well placed to serve as a kind of intermediary between the British and French, because Clemenceau identified with him in his stance on the treaty, and Lloyd George was also wont to meet with him regularly. Perhaps he could develop some kind of compromise solution then. House was somewhat silent over the actual implications of the meeting of the American delegation though. Rather than focus on the British and French leaders, it deserves mention that the American delegates themselves were very much divided. During the course of the meeting on the morning of the 3rd of June, 
Tasker Howard Bliss, one of the five men on the US delegation, gave his opinions on the Rhineland occupation situation, urging first and foremost that the United States seek a compromise, saying, I think that it, the Rhineland issue, is almost entirely a political question rather than a military one, because no essential military objects will be accomplished by the military occupation of the territories proposed to be occupied under the proposed conditions. And I have never been in favour of the prolonged military occupation, and I based my views on two considerations. First is the matter of good, sound policy. The other is sound business. As a matter of policy, I have always, and a good many other military men agree with me on that, looked with apprehension on the possibilities of a military occupation of the territory, the people of which will be officially at peace with for a long time. It is so likely to result in incidents that will bring about the very thing that we want, of course, to avoid, and that is a resumption of war. It has always seemed to me that it is almost a slap in the face of the League of Nations, in which we are all so interested to assume that the execution of this treaty, extending over a long term of years, can only be accomplished by a military force, instead of by this League of Nations, which presumably, at an early date, will be in operation. Yet, Wilson would not address his peers' objections. True to form, the President seemed largely unwilling to give due attention to anything the other men on the delegation said. As to the argument that the League would solve the Rhineland issue, Wilson said this was impossible because it was not known when Germany would be granted access to the League. Why not, Robert Lansing, the Secretary of State, said, why not make it known and make a plan whereby Germany would be presented with some proposal for joining the League upon the conclusion of peace? Wilson considered it, but said that this was impossible now, because until it could be guaranteed that the German government had committed to democracy, it would be unsafe to bring her into the League. Apparently the hosting of several elections, the creation of a new constitution, and the election of a constitutional assembly for the Weimar Republic did not suffice to prove the German democratic credentials to the American president then. This would have been immensely disappointing for those new democratic German politicians, but Wilson wasn't quite finished. He also took the time to vent, exclaiming amongst his peers on the British behaviour that These people that overrode our judgement and wrote things into the treaty that are now these stumbling blocks are falling over themselves to remove those stumbling blocks. Now, if they ought not to have been there, I say remove them, but I say do not remove them merely for the fact of having the treaty signed. When the meeting of the Council of Four convened that afternoon on the 3rd of June 1919, it was inevitable then that tempers should flare up. They had, after all, already flared up among the delegation's own private meetings. Sure enough, when tucking into the issue of Upper Silesia, Wilson and Lloyd George went back and forth for several minutes on the question of a plebiscite there. They argued first over how indisputably German or Polish the region was, Lloyd George insisted that it was wrong to tear out Upper Silesia from Germany, where it had existed there as a part for 800 years. It was even more an integral part of Germany than Alsace-Lorraine was of France, the Prime Minister said, but Clemenceau refrained from intervening just yet, in response to what may have been a potential baiting of him here. Lloyd George claimed that soldiers would have to be brought in to supervise the plebiscite and prove that the population there wished to be with Poland rather than Germany, as the treaty suggested. Wilson rushed to proclaim that it sounded like Lloyd George was hinting the president did not stand for the principles of self-determination. 
Lloyd George insisted that the Germans would have to trust the Allies if this was going to work. Wilson rolled it back a bit next and suggested that on the whole, he and Lloyd George were not too far apart and that he only wished to ensure that the right thing was done which would not compromise the spirit of the treaty. Lloyd George agreed and said that they were closer in opinion than the surface disagreements might have suggested. Lloyd George then added that he was ready to make any concession that was fair, particularly if it would give the Germans an inducement to sign. For example, even though a plebiscite would make no difference in the ultimate destination of Silesia, nonetheless, if it would enable the Germans to sign the treaty, I would be in favour of it. To this, Wilson said that he had no objection to doing anything which would help the Germans to sign, provided he was doing right. Lloyd George clarified his stance by saying that he thought there ought to be a plebiscite taken where any doubt arose. There did seem to be a certain element of doubt in Upper Silesia, and so, surely, a plebiscite for the region could be wise. Wilson then suggested that the best plan would probably be to appoint commissioners to draw up the safeguards and supervise the operation of the plebiscite. Once again, this would place the immediate decision over Upper Silesia on the long finger, and it would pass the book to the subordinates of the Big Three. Here, though, Clemenceau intervened, insisting that a fair plebiscite was impossible in Germany, as was democratic representation. Wilson then referred to the 13th of his 14 points, wherein it was confirmed that land which was indisputably Polish would be incorporated in a new Polish state. Lloyd George fired back that This was exactly the challenge that the Germans made, They said that the population was not Polish in sentiment. Surely the clause just read did not mean that if the Poles preferred to remain under Germany, they would have to become Polish because they were of Polish race. Wilson replied that, We know the ethnographical facts, and there was no need to add a plebiscite, which was not imposed by the 14 points. Lloyd George then made use of something of a low blow when he claimed that, Under the doctrine proposed by President Wilson, Alsace ought not to go to France, since its population was of German origin. But Wilson then rushed to clarify that Alsace-Lorraine was expressly provided for in the 14 points. In the cases of both Alsace-Lorraine and of Poland, the President said, there were specific articles in the 14 points to meet the specific conditions, and the settlement was based on those rather than on general principles. The compromise reached in this meeting was that Germany would be offered a plebiscite supervised by an international commission in Upper Silesia. If the Germans refused, then the Allies would do with the region what they wished, which meant handing it to Poland as planned. The conclusion reached as to Upper Silesia was thus somewhat lukewarm, but this shouldn't be too surprising considering the fact that Upper Silesia did not arouse as much passion or emotion as the Rhineland issue, for example, did for France or the accession of Germany to the League of Nations did for the United States, or reparations did for Britain. Upper Silesia was a seriously contentious issue though, and it did not die down truly until 1922, when a treaty was made between Germany and the Poles in Geneva. It was recommended then that a commission be established to consider Lloyd George's objections, which would ideally take the onus off of the Council of Four to consider them for the foreseeable future. This did reduce some of the pressure on the Council of Four, but there was no stopping the Big Three from rushing into the question of German armaments and the linkage of that question to the League next. Under the terms of the counterproposals, after all, 
It had been said that Germany would reduce its armed forces as desired as soon as it was brought into the League. Indeed, several other promises were being made along lines similar to these in the German counter-proposals. For the moment, it was sufficient for Lloyd George to accept that the reply to the German delegation, whenever it might be sent, should express the fact that the Allied and Associated Powers had no intention to exclude Germany permanently from the League of Nations, but that her inclusion must be postponed until the sincerity of the change in the system of government in Germany had been proved by experience. Germany's concern, of course, was that they would never be sincere enough for the Allies to have the League door opened to her, but this declaration might at least placate these fears. Finally, Lloyd George exclaimed that the German documents had made a certain impression in the Allied countries, and it was necessary to consider the question of a general reply. Lloyd George said that he thought it was very important to put the general case and to controvert certain points. It was desirable, Lloyd George said, that a reasoned statement should be prepared. He had already instructed his secretary, Mr. Philip Kerr, to set to work on this subject. In the meantime, the other leaders agreed, no private correspondence with Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau would be sent. The Allied response would also demand a time limit for the German acceptance of the treaty terms, which will be decided upon soon. As a final veiled protest against Lloyd George's approach, Wilson expressed his view that he was not at all convinced that even if these concessions now proposed were made, that the Germans would actually sign. Clemenceau sided with Wilson without too much deliberation and said that he was convinced the Germans would not sign unless significant military pressure was applied. Lloyd George replied to this challenge to his concessionary policy by saying that he thought that if Brockdorf Ransau would not sign, he would probably be replaced by someone else whose signature might be of little account. This was what the Prime Minister had been reduced to, using the threat which defeated statesmen had used in the past, which boiled down to, if you defeat me now, I'll be replaced by someone worse. By this point, though, on the 3rd of June, the big three were happy enough to move on from this issue. By the evening of Tuesday the 3rd of June 1919 then, the Paris Peace Conference must have felt like a very different place from a week before. Not only had the Germans delivered a grave challenge to the Allied conception of just peacemaking, but this challenge had split the Allies apart, apparently for good. There was no indication how the British and French leaders in particular were going to repair their relationship. Their joint claims to return to Parliament to present the deal to a frustrated public told its own tale, as did veiled threats that the situation would get much worse if concessions, in Lloyd George's case, were ignored, or if in Clemenceau's case, they were accepted. Two very different approaches to peacemaking from two very different national leaders who had led two very different nations to war. Yet, these two figures would have to put their differences aside if this treaty was ever going to be signed. This development had at least made it more doubtful than ever before that the treaty actually would be signed. The counter-proposals had had the result of putting the cat amongst the pigeons in the Council of Four. Now the Big Three had to consider not only the Germans, but also their loudly expressed, deeply entrenched divisions. The question remained, then, would these allies attempt to fight it out from these trenches, or would they rise up over the parapet and cross into the no-man's-land of diplomatic compromise in the name of the greater good? By the 3rd of June 1919, either way, it was all up in the air.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.